The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. And really, the reason I taught on this was because so many people were kind of inquiring and asking about it and for me to do so. Um, and, you know, it's like one of the news networks there. You know, I don't, I'm never dogmatic and demanding people agree with me or anything like that. Uh, it's, it's sort of a we report, you decide kind of thing. You know what I mean? And so um, none of us know everything. That's, you know, there's only one Jesus and uh, we're not him. That's why we have a body of Christ. You know, there's one head, but we're the multifaceted, multi-membered body, and we work together. No one man has all the answers. Nobody. You know, take your pick, man. Uh, I don't know who some of your church heroes are from whatever, Billy Graham to Kenneth Hagin to uh, Lester Summerall to Joseph Prince to Andrew Womack to take your pick. No one man or woman has all the answers. And so uh, we just do the best with the life that we have, and we stay humble, you know, in the meantime, and uh, just do the best with we have, uh, with what we have. Um, but I've been teaching Revelation uh, from what many, and I shared some quotes last week, and I, and I, I don't even know if I got this thing totally figured out here, because I, again, I'll stop apologizing for it at some point, but let me see. If, yeah, this is... We had shared several things from church history. Uh, it might be a little hard to see, but just want to read it to you. Uh, this is Eusebius. Eusebius was the very first church historian. All right? And he lived, as you may be able to see there, from 263 to 339 AD. Um, and his... Uh, Church history is readily available. You can get it online. You can get it, the physical book via Amazon. You know, you can get it, uh, the ebook version, probably an audio book. I, I've seen his stuff uh, even several, several, several times, even recently at Barnes & Noble here in Portage. So, you know, you can get his church history book. Uh, but nonetheless, this year, so he's talking about Matthew chapter 24, what's known as the Olivet Discourse. He says, all of this, see, Jesus' disciples asked him, when will these things be? What things? The sign of your, in the Greek, parousia, or your, it's literally the word for presence, all right? Because all throughout the old, what we just kind of lumped together is the Old Testament, Yahweh would come in what's, what were known as cloud comings or judgment comings. He, he comes in the clouds, Isaiah 19, or in Psalm 88, he makes the clouds his chariots. Yahweh was known for coming to nations and bringing, you know, judgments of various kinds on them. But it was never physical, visible comings. All right? And so, uh, even, you know, I mean, we, this, we don't know, we don't think of these things. But even in 1 Corinthians, uh, there's places uh, in different places where Paul would even tell the churches he's writing to. He would say, I'm not with you physically, but my spirit is with you, and I've already judged this matter. You understand that? First Corinthians, uh, the guy sleeping with his stepmom, I believe, was one example of where Paul made a statement similar to that. So we have abundant scriptural, under, but we don't always connect the dots, right? So he says all of this occurred in this manner, in the second year of the reign of Vespasian, which was in the year 8070. 
according to the predictions of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? King James's world, Greek word age, most every other translation puts it age there as it should. And he goes through so many things. Uh, wars and rumors of wars. Gospel going out, uh, gospel of the kingdom going to the whole Oikimene, or Roman kingdom. Uh, ethnos against ethnos. Ethnic group, ethnic group. Nation, nation. Uh, uh, all these types of things. And then Jesus directly answered their question in verse 34 when he said, truly I tell you, this generation, the one he was talking to, when he said those words in the year 30 AD, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so he, there, there's no wiggle room out of that. I don't know why we try to change the scriptures to fit our paradigms. We, we, you know, we want to get past that. We want to let scripture interpret scripture. And so the, and, uh, let me see a couple more here. John Calvin said this about uh, the Olivet Discourse. He said, Christ informed them that before a single generation will have been completed, they will learn by experience the truth of what he had said for within 50 years, and it was technically 40. He said, the city was destroyed and the temple was raised, R-A-Z-E-D. The whole country was reduced to a hideous desert. All right? So John Calvin like him, love him, or lump him. Uh, he was a. Uh, I uh, am not terribly fond of Calvinism, but uh, he was a brilliant man uh, nonetheless. Um, John Wesley here, sort of on the opposite end of Calvin and the, re uh, the, the Reformers, said this. Uh, maybe. <laughs> said this. John Wesley, you've all at least heard of him and Methodist and all that. He said Matthew 24 was, and that's really hard to see most punctually fulfilled. For after the temple was burned, Titus, the Roman general, ordered that even the very foundation of it be dug up. What did Jesus tell them? Not one stone will be left standing. All right? That's not a future rebuilt temple. That was the temple that was then. He said, uh, after which the ground on which it stood was plowed by Turnus Rufus, this generation, and then he quotes, this generation of men living would not pass away till all those things be done. He had said this expression implies that a great part of that generation would be passed away, but not all of them. Just so it was, for the city and the temple were destroyed 39 to 40 years after Jesus said those words. And a biblical generation is 40 years. And we see the 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 precedent for that, because the Lord and the, the author of Hebrews repeatedly in Hebrews chapter three and chapter four, but you know he kept uh, quoting from uh, different places in the Old Testament where the Lord called the children of Israel in the wilderness. What did He call them? Uh, this generation. I'm not pleased with this generation, this untoward generation. And so the author of Hebrews uses that 40 year precedent as a generation in that sense. You got David from the time David was anointed. From the time that he, in 1 Samuel 16, until the time that he actually became king, 40 years, all right? And there's many, uh, many, many, many other places in scripture where that 40-year motif plays out. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, great, you know, metropolitan was it tabernacle in England, great renowned preacher in the 1800s. 
He said there was a sufficient interval for the full proclamation of the gospel by the apostles and evangelists of the early Christian church. And for the gathering of those, there's your gathering scripture, by the way, the elect being gathered unto the Lord from the four corners of the Oikomene, there's your gathering, uh, who recognized that, uh, uh, sorry, the crucified Christ was the true Messiah. Then came the awful end which the Savior foresaw and foretold, and the prospect of which wrung from his lips and heart the sorrowful lament that followed his prophecy of the doom awaiting his guilty capital. The destruction of Jerusalem was more terrible than anything that the world has ever witnessed, either before or since. Now that, that has to be qualified because we, we think, well, no, this happened, that happened. What he's saying here, Old Covenant Israel was the only nation to ever have a national covenantal identity with Yahweh. They're the only nation that had a covenant with God. Right. See, see, even today, there's no natural, physical nation. America's not in covenant with God. Israel, modern Israel's not in covenant with God. There's only one new covenant. It's between the Father and the Son. And whoever is in the Son, in Christ, partakes of their covenant faithfulness and blessings towards one another. Does that make sense? Amen. There's only one new covenant. There's only one new and better covenant. It's, it's uh, between the Father and the Son, and we are blessed in the firstborn. He's the firstborn of many brethren. That's why in the Jewish system, the Lord you know, brought forth uh, you know, the, the blessing on the firstborn. Well, Jesus is the firstborn, and that's why we're blessed with his blessings, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Uh, let me see. I'll give you the last one here. John Eckhart, a modern minister. He's out of Chicago. Fairly well known. He says, the book of Revelation, also known as the Apocalypse. What's the word Apocalypse literally mean in the Greek? To unveil, to reveal. Revelation. All of that. Yeah, everyone say it. Ball, get a gold star today. All right. The word apocalypse or apocalyptic is often used to refer to total and universal destruction, which is completely uh, erroneous. He says, many believe the revelation is an apocalypse of the uh, a vision of the end of the world. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the name of the Lord, is not about the end of human history, but instead the end of the covenantal history and the Jewish age. So very profound stuff there. That's review, and let's just get into a few things here for a few moments. And uh, that alone's worth the price of admission, I think. Because why are people not telling us that all of church history has believed this? You know? And you have this doctrine that's less than 200 years old called dispensationalism that just said forget 2,000 years, well at that time 1,800 years of church history, and let's put all this stuff in the future and make it about the end of the world. And it wasn't about the end of the cosmos or the creation, it was about the end of a covenant, all right? A covenantal end. And so uh, very important, uh, significant stuff here that far too many of us have not known about, uh, at least in America. Revelation 16, and I'll try not to keep you terribly long here.
Revelation chapter 16. All right. Um, uh, picking up right where we, you know, left off, and uh, notice this here. Oh, sorry. He says, verse one. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, uh, "Go and pour out on the earth." Revelation sixteen one, and. To kick a dead horse yet again. What does the word earth there mean in the Greek? Yay. It's it's in, it's what in transliterating transliterating it, it would be our letters G and E, which literally means the land. The land and it's the land of Israel. It's not cosmos, it's not even the whole Roman Empire, it's just the land. And it's it's a word that's used very commonly in the New Testament, like whenever uh, well Many times, like when Jesus, you know, my, Matthew 12, if he's rebuking and he says, you know, it will be more tolerable for, you know, the land of Sodom or whoever, you know, it's, the, it's land. It does, it's a specific area. And so it's not the whole world. It's uh, could be translated a little better there. But, uh, on the land of Israel, that is, seven bowls of the wrath of God. Verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and it became a, now notice, uh, We'll read several things here, but it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Now, we we spent really the, the previous two weeks and, and looked at some of the things uh, on the mark of the beast. And, of course, we know in uh, there were two different beasts, the scripture tells us. Uh, one of the beasts, uh, of course, you have the land beast and the sea beast. And one of the beasts was the, the then Roman Empire and... Uh, sort of headed, if you will, uh, by the Caesar and the Caesar cultic worship system and all of that. Of course, we again, uh, I, I throw out things in review as I'm you know, going along. Uh, we know the Caesars were called Lord, and to say that someone else was Lord, like this Jesus guy, uh, was uh, quite the statement. Uh, could definitely cause some trouble for you, not only with the Jewish people, the unbelieving Jews, but even the Roman kingdom that uh, you are subjected to. You know, and we know that they were, we understand Jesus and the first century Jews were living under the Roman Empire. We understand that abundantly, yeah. Uh, and so then we see the other beast, of course, land beast, sea beast. Uh, one was the Roman Empire, uh, the pagan Roman Empire. The other was the apostate Israel, Old Covenant Jewish people, however you want to put it. And so now, the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a dead man. And every living thing, or really in the Greek, every living soul in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Uh, and I heard the angels of the water saying, Righteous are you, who are, who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things, for they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have, now notice this, you have given them blood to drink, they deserve it. Now notice this again. Verse 5, he said, I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you, 
who are and who were. O Holy One, because you have judged these things, for they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. Now, the book of Revelation has some 400 quotations from the Old Testament. All right? It's the most plagiarized book. You know, the book of Hebrews, yeah, yeah. The book of Hebrews does a lot of Old Testament quotations, and of course other books do. But Revelation by far does it more than any other book. And so even this here, though, you start seeing the references, and we're going to look at something here in some other scriptures. Now notice he says, For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you've given them blood to drink, for they deserve it. Now, if you were, let's look at uh, Matthew 23 here. And we'll see the similarities here in Matthew 23. And uh, these people here who poured out, you know, the uh, blood of the saints and the prophets. Matthew 23, which of course is directly connected to Matthew 24 and 25. Really, you got to go back to around Matthew 21 to get to the beginning of what, you know, all of Matthew 21 to the end of 25 are all directly connected, you know. Uh, Bill, or somebody, could you give me a bottle of water, if you don't mind, please? Nothing worse than a dry preacher. Amen. No better than all one of <laughs> Amen. Thank you, God. Nice and cold. Ah, that's what I like. They say in public speaking, you need like, you know, just room temperature water for your vocal cords. That may be true, but I've always preferred cold water when I'm speaking, preaching, teaching. Eleanor. Cold heart, cold water. Yeah, it tastes oh, way better. It tastes way better. <laughs> Carrie used to always, maybe she still does. Still, still <laughs> see, dry preacher there. Maybe she still does, but when she talks about water, because I always, my favorite water has always been Evian or Avion, Evian, I guess. Um, she's always like, it's just water. It all tastes the same. Yeah, right, Dan. You're drunk. It does not taste the same. <laughs> Yeah. Dasani, no thank you. I mean, you know, I'll drink it. Don't get don't get on, but you know, Dasani and then Aquafina and then uh, I like sparkling waters a lot. You know. um, usually when I'm in a restaurant, if I get water I get the carbonated water. You know, I really like that. Anyone else do that? Yeah. Yeah. Well water. What's that? Well water. Well water, yeah. Yeah. Well, sorry about that. Look here. Matthew 23. <laughs> Verse 1. Jesus says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and the disciples. Am I on? No. There we go. Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees, they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Uh, neither of which, by the way, uh, both the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were sort of, how do you put it, they were, uh, 
outworkings. They were groups that just, through different vagaries of history and schools, of literal schools, theological schools, things that came about. But it's not like in the Old Testament God set up the Pharisees or the Sadducees. All right. Now the Sadducees did come from the priestly lineage, but I would still say that by this time they weren't what they were supposed to be. Nonetheless, uh, he says, now notice this, therefore all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. Verse 4. They lay up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. I have been to that church. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I've been there. First Church of Pharisee, man. I've been there. I guess I, gosh, you hate to admit these things, but I suppose I was one. You know, you just, when all you know is all you know, that's all you know. And so, you know. But yeah, you know, heavy burdens. And, it, and of course, this puts me in the mind of Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus says, come unto me, all of you who work or labor and are carrying a heavy load, heavy laden. And that was something Pharisees would do back in, in this time. If you were uh, a spiritual guru of sorts, you know, a leader or something, uh, and you had, of course, many people had, you know, John the Baptist had disciples, right? I mean, so many people in groups had their own disciples, and you could be a Pharisee and still have your own whatever group, that type thing. And that's how you would call people, people unto you, is you would go out in the city streets and say, come unto me! And you'd give your spiel. But that's how it, it was a literal, you know, come unto me. And that's how you would call people to, you know, if anyone wanted to follow you. And, of course, Jesus offered a different system. But he says here they offer, or they uh, lay up heavy burdens. Then he says they do all these things to be seen by men, uh, all these types of things. Now, we're going to jump down here. We can't uh, read this whole thing. Uh, it's a rather scathing uh, rebuke against this wicked system that was, as Jesus is talking about here, that was putting heavy burdens. You know, one thing Jesus is not thrilled about, and he loves all people, even the Pharisees, thank God, or, you know, we'd be out of luck, because we've been there, I think some of us. Um, but the Lord is just, it's like sin. Sin is not, God is squeaky clean, and you'll just really mess up his, whatever, you'll just really Mess his whole day up if you, uh, you know, whatever. It, it's not, it's sin hurts people, you know, and yourself or others. And so that's why sin is uh, the issue that it has been because God doesn't like things that hurt people, that harm people, that destroy people, that, you know, lead people astray. Um, Let's jump down here to verse, I mean, look at verse 13. What are you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people? You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow uh, those who are, in, who are entering to go in. Then he, then he says here, uh, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, you devour widows' houses and make pre, for a pretense long prayers. And then he says, therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. You know, the Pharisees, they had all their own laws, too. You know, they have what's known as fence laws. The Jewish people 
uh, some even today, but uh, of course we understand that today's so-called Orthodox Jews are still not biblical Jews. It's not biblical Judaism. You can't have biblical Judaism without a temple in Jerusalem. So, it, so you understand? So that's why when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, the Sadducees cease to exist. But the Pharisees, Sadducees believed all form of worship had to be conducted in and about the temple. The Pharisees were, were good with temple stuff, but they believed you could also take it outside the temple and into the world, right? Um, at least the Sadducees kept their bondage to themselves, right? You know, <laughs> But the Pharisees wanted to go and infect and pollute and bless others with their toxicity, you know, that type of thing. But they had these fence laws. And so like one of the big ten, you know, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So they built a fence around that law, fence law. So how could we, okay, so we don't want to take his name in vain. Well, I'll tell you what, how about we just don't even say his name at all? Because if we don't ever say that, you know, God, if we don't ever even say Yahweh, or, uh, then we can't even get close to, uh, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it's a fence law to yeah, taking in vain. And so they had all these systems set up. And so uh, these were their own things that they brought about. Just legalism never gets enough, man. That's one thing the law, legalist, legalism never says is enough. You know, and of course, like Jesus uh, told the young guy there one time, he said, yeah, you know, what do I do to get a eternal life? He says, do this, do that. He said, oh, I've done all those things for my youth. He says, yeah, but one thing you lack. And with the law, it's always one thing you lack. If you're depending on works to make you right with God, you will always come up short. There will always be one thing you lack. And when you do that, one thing you lack. You understand? It's never enough. And, and we've lived there, right? When you're, you're trying to stab your conscience, you know, with your works to feel right with God, instead of resting in the reality that we are right with God, living in the knowledge of that truth. Because when you know knowledge, truth, that makes you free. And living in the reality of truth is glorious. Amen? Amen. So we don't want to live in the inferiority of feelings that are up one minute and down the next. We want to live in the reality of truth. Now, uh, so Jesus, you know, and as a matter of fact, if you read Mark 11, then you get into Mark chapter 12, and you get into what's known as the widow and the widow's might, that whole account, Jesus goes off on those guys. And then you see a part of it here where he says, you devour widows' houses. See, we always talk about her like that was a good thing. And I mean, it's fine. I'm glad she wanted to give unto God. I mean, that, that is a good thing. You know, we all do. But they were devouring her, I suspect, with some of the same stuff that charismatics, we charismatics, unfortunately, do, not us, but do today. Oh, just give another one. Oh, just, if you'll just give the Psalm 77 offering in the next 77 seconds, then in 77 months, you'll have... 77, whatever, purple trees. And so they devoured, she gave all this, she, nothing, man, she had nothing, you know what I'm saying, nothing left. They just devoured her house, you know. And of course, it wasn't Psalm 77 when it was written, nonetheless. Now, let's, let's just jump down here a few, uh, I gotta kind of wrap, start wrapping this up here. Um, let's jump on down near the lower portion of the chapter. Uh, let's do so much stuff here I hate to have to jump over but got to get to the meat of it so to speak 
Um, verse 20, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, 29, that'll work. Okay, verse 29. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, quote, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Sorry, that's verse 30. Then verse 31, he says, So you testify against yourselves that you are the children, the sons of those who murdered the prophets. So what did we read in Revelation 16 there? That they pour out the blood of the prophets and of the saints, apostate the apostate Jewish people, all right, which we know all throughout the Old Testament system, man. Just read first, just first and second Chronicles and Kings alone will give you a, a, a great picture of kind of what Jesus is touching on here. He says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence or the damnation of Gehenna? Which Few hundred years later, it gets transliterated into hell. And you know, last week during the church service, I had mentioned. Now, I do believe, you know, in a afterlife and all these types of things and heaven, hell, whatever, you know. Uh, but it's just worth understanding, at least, uh, particularly in the New Testament, you have two words basically uh, for what is came to be known or transliterated as our word hell, one of which was Gehenna, the other is Hades or Hades, what we, what we probably call Hades. Uh, Hades, Hades, was the, the abode of the dead. So that's what the afterlife place, all right? And in the Old Testament, uh, that's from the Hebrew word Sheol or Sheol, all right? And so to the Jewish people, it was Sheol, to the Greeks, Hades, all right? And so the abode of the dead. But very often in the New Testament, it's the word Gehenna. And I think it's just a little, a little unfortunate that the word Gehenna is translated as hell, because Gehenna had nothing to do with an afterlife place in and of itself, all right? And last week I had mentioned Gehenna, and, of course, in the book of Jeremiah, you see several references to it. Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, 21 or 23, I think, and other places. You see the Valley of Hinnom. Valley of Hinnom. So I say it, I don't know, H-I-N-N-O-M, I believe it is. That's Gehenna. And I mentioned that it was a wasteland, a dump, a garbage. Uh, it was the place where the worm died not and the fire wasn't quenched because it was always on fire, Corpses were thrown in there, and just, you know, it was just a, not a good place. Not the place you wanted your teenagers to hang out at, you know, that type of thing. And I mentioned that last week, and then after the service, I go in my office, and uh, Fawn had uh, loaned me a book. It's got uh, just tons of cool stuff in it. And then there's a place I looked at, and it was a, a picture, you know, you know, 
uh, of ancient Israel and Jerusalem. And then I'm sitting here looking at it. Here's the temple complex, and here's the city. And then I showed Chris in the office right outside, more or less, of the, the city here. It said uh, Valley of Hinnom. And that's Gehenna. It was a literal, physical, this world place, right? And so this is where this hell, and I would say it was definitely a, a hell, this is where uh, the Jews, as the Romans come in and slaughter them and impale them and set them on fire and starve them to death and burn their homes down and kill them for sport and behead. And uh, they would heave giant stones through the air with catapults. And we'll see that in Revelation where it talks about the hailstones coming from out of the sky. It's, you know, what was literally happening, all this type of stuff. And then this is where they take all these corpses, some of them. Some of them were left in the sea, and that's why the seas turned to blood and all these things. Uh, but they would take these just shrews of body and throw them into Gehenna and just <clears throat> more wood for the fire, if you will. You know, it's about as pleasant as you can describe it, I guess. So he said, how will you escape the sentence of Gehenna? You know, as, you know this is uh, where in Jeremiah... Uh, if you've ever you know, read there in chapter 7, the Lord, uh, through the prophet speaking to Israel, the Israelites were taking their children, and it talks about in some of the translations, they would pass through the fire. What was happening, the Jews, the Israelites, the apostate Israelites, were taking their own children and burning them as sacrificial offerings to the false god, Molech. All right, so if you see Molech in your Old Testament, particularly uh, Jeremiah, that's a false god. And in Jeremiah 7, the Lord actually says to them, this wickedness that you've done, he said, I did not command it, and it never even entered into my mind that you would do something so wicked. You know, and so they were offering their children uh, on the altar of Molech. And where? In the valley of Hinnom. All right, Gehenna. So this is a bad place with a bad reputation. Now, sorry to cheer you up so much there. Boy, it's quiet. <laughs> Verse 34, and I'm trying to wrap up here now. He says, therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them, you, you Pharisees, you Jewish leaders at this time, you will... Uh, uh, kill and crucify. Of course, crucifixion was an extremely uh, common form of execution at this time. He says, some of them you will scourge in your synagogues. We'll just go to the book of Acts, and you can see that happening. Then he says, and persecute them from city to city. Then he says, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So this is the same thing as we read in Revelation chapter 16 there. All right, whenever he tells them, verses 5 and 6, that you have poured out the blood of all the righteous and all of the saints. Therefore, you know, there's different ways of saying it in different scriptures, but the, the cup of your wrath is full. 
you know, and now your blood will be poured out, right? And so, uh, and if you think about it, and there's other scriptures, but you know, you've got Jesus, right? And then you've got Barabbas, all right? And, and of course, uh, you've got the different leaders, you know, Pilate and uh, uh, a Gentile leader. Uh, but there's so many, and there's so many types and shadows being fulfilled in there. It's crazy. Like when Jesus is brought before the priest, you know, and, and uh, you know, who do you say you are? And truly, you'll see the Son of Man ascending. And, of course, that's, he's quoting Daniel 7, saying, I am the Son of Man, which Son of Man means Messiah. But long story short, that's, that's literally what it referred to. And so that's when they spit and they tear their robes and they pluck his beard. Well, the priesthood is laying their hands on the spotless lamb. Jesus is standing and being examined. He declares his spotless, sinless state. And of course, in Leviticus, this is what you do. You lay your hand on your animal. You confess your sin. The priest slices his throat and then takes it in. And, you know, that's, what, that's how it works, shedding the blood. And so here's the true spotless lamb before the priest and the leaders of Israel, and they lay hands on him. You know, and so there's that sin transfer process is being initiated and so many things happening there. But Jesus is also the Messiah for the Gentiles. And then you've got Jesus and Pilate, you know, and you've got all these things happening. And he says, I find no fault in this man. What do you want to do? And they said, crucify him. And then you've got Barabbas, which Bar, you know, Simon, Bar Jonah, son of Jonah. Bar Abbas is Bar Abba, son of the father. So you've got the true son of the heavenly father, Jesus, and then you've got us, wicked, you know, uh, Ephesians calls us children who by nature are children of wrath. You know, we're just, we're all affected by the fall, if we want to say it that way. And so here's Bar Abba, the, the other false, if you will, son of, of the father, the fallen father. Jesus in John 8 told the, the Jewish leaders, he said, you are children of your father, the devil. He said there is no truth in him. Uh, he, he's the father of lies, and he's a liar from the beginning. So we see that father you know, system being used there. But then, uh, of course, he would release a criminal. And he says, look, I find no fault in this man. And what did the, the Jewish leader say? Let, let his blood and his guilt be on us. And, of course, we see this here. And this is what made first century apostate Israel so wicked because they committed the sin of sins. The very one who come to save them, they not only reject, they also, of course, he had to let it happen, they also killed him, right? Is these things making sense and coming together? He says all these things will be on this generation. Now, it's not like Jesus is saying, yeah, you're all going to die, such terrible deaths. It's not, you know, keep reading here. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and who stones those who are sent to her. How often I would or I wanted to gather uh, you unto me or your children together. Now notice this. The way that a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Very tender, right? Yes. He says, but you were unwilling. So Jesus is not wanting this catastrophe to come on them. He's and of course, it didn't happen to all of them. Those who believed in the Messiah, he did. They, is he did a word? Hallelujah! They heeded his warnings. And Luke, like in Luke twenty-one, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. Well, they did. But notice what he says here: Behold, your house. Of course, the house is the temple. 
Jesus said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Many other scriptures. Your house is being left to you desolate. Now this word desolate, this desolation, this abomination of desolation, when Jesus uses that language, he's quoting from the book of Daniel, all right, chapter 9. So he says, I would gather you all unto me and protect you, but you won't. You're the one who's unwilling. He said, therefore, your house is being left to you desolate. Then he says, from now on, uh, for I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, referring to his parousia, his 70 AD coming. Next verse, don't change subject. Don't, just because a chapter changes, doesn't necessarily mean, and very often does not mean, that there's any change of subject. Next verse, Matthew 24, 1. So Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, which that takes me back to the book of Ezekiel. When apostate Israel, God keeps trying to help them and keep, you know, bring them on the right path. Or the Babylonians are going to come and destroy them then, 586 B.C., and they did. But slowly but surely, the, the, the glory uh, departed. The, the, when Solomon dedicated the temple, it says the, the cloud of God's glory filled the temple and the priests couldn't even stand. But then Ezekiel, much later, we see uh, the glory departing from the temple. Not because God was one. They were pushing him away, if you will. You know. Now, so and this reminds me of this. Jesus departing from the temple. There's God leaving the temple. And was going away when his disciples came and they pointed out that he, we have to understand the temple at this time was what we would consider one of the great wonders of the world. And of course, uh, Titus, uh, the general in charge during the actual siege of the temple, because this was a very long process, the war of the Romans and the Jews, uh, Titus actually told his own men to not destroy the temple. All right? Uh, but Josephus writes about it, the great Jewish historian, and says that it was as, it was as if a great delusion, a great ravaging of demons, a horde of demons just swept over them, and even against their commanders, their leaders' commands, they destroyed the temple anyways. A very fascinating stuff there. So they point out the temple, you know, and they, he said to them, do you not see all these things? See, there's a natural perspective, and then there's God's perspective, the, the heavenly, true perspective, right? He says, do you not see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will even be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and this right here is the fulfillment of Zechariah and the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14, I believe, whenever he, he God stands on the temple and it splits down the middle. Well, it's not a literal, physical thing, but here is the Lord standing on the temple, dividing it in half. Old covenant coming to an end, new covenant coming into fruition, right? Uh, he's standing on the Mount of Olives. The disciples come to him privately saying, tell us. I mean, this is staggering. If I came in here today and I better watch, I mean, think of another way to do this. Yeah, if I, you know, if we lived in somewhere else and I said, man, uh, the Great Wall of China, it's going to be torn down. Not a single stone left standing, you know, and that thing's been here before us and will remain after us, you know, or whatever, man, take your pick, something rather significant and extravagant. It would be a pretty big statement, right? You know, and so uh, they come to him privately and say, Lord, tell us, when, when will these things be? What things? The sign of your coming, your judgment coming, your parousia in Greek, and the end of the age. 
And then he goes through all these things. You know, we've covered some and may look at more in the future. Uh, nonetheless, then you get down to verse 34, and he directly answers their question. Truly I say to you, this generation. Now we just read in Matthew 23, 36 or 7 there when he said all these things will come upon this generation. And again, he reiterates it right here. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth, which in the first century and before the first century, uh, very often the Jews referred to their temple as heaven and earth. All right, that's like in Matthew 5 when Jesus says, uh, not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away until heaven and earth passes away. Talking about the temple, all right? So he says heaven and earth, the temple system, will not pass away. As a matter of fact, the word earth there is the word again, not cosmos, it's the land of Israel. Heaven and the old covenant Jewish system, heaven and earth, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, gosh, The clock, man, is like the worst enemy I've got. I'm gonna name. I'm gonna dub that thing Diablo. <laughs> take it down. Woo! Give me five more minutes. Thank you. So it says here in verse. Oh, uh, just follow me though. I'm back in Revelation. I just want to quickly show you this. Hold your spot, Matthew 24, though. So picking up in Revelation 16, it says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to scorch men with fire. Now this speaks of the rampant burning, the literal burning down of literal Jewish people and their homes, and of course ultimately their temple, and their, you know, their businesses, their homes. I mean, it was a pretty savage situation, uh, the, the extreme burning down you know, of the city. Men were scorched with fierce heat. They blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent to give him glory. Boy, there's so much in that. The fifth angel sounded out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom uh, became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues in pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores. That's uh, the Jewish beast there. And they did not repent of their deeds. Very quickly, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates. Uh, and there's so much to say about this, but about some of the wars, and even here in the first century, uh, concerning some of the great battles that took place with the Romans uh, near the Euphrates, and it was an entry point sometimes. It's a military, very military mind. Uh, I mean, you, I guess there's places even in our world that you could just mention. Well, if I mentioned, uh, God, my mind, or a cat dying, just threw me off this morning, uh, Gettysburg. You know, if you mention Gettysburg, your mind goes there. There's certain things you associate, right? Euphrates had certain battle-ridden military associations with it, all right? Uh, prepared for the kings of the east. He said, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, and the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of, mouth of the false prophet. Dragon, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Of course, I believe the false prophet was apostate Israel, collectively. Uh, they were the spirits of demons, performing signs, 
which go out to the kings of the whole uh, world. I believe that's Oikomene in the Greek Roman Empire. To gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I, now notice this. This is the last two verses here, and I think I'm finished on this. He says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. Of course, you go through the book of Revelation. What were the saints who, stayed, who were faithful to the Messiah, believing in the Messiah? They were white, pure white linen, pure white robes of righteousness, which was believing in the Messiah, the gift of righteousness. Who stay awake, keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked, and they will not see his shame. Obviously, that might very well put your mind in Genesis and some of the things there. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called, depending on your translation, how it looks, Armageddon or Har-Mageddon. All right? Uh, if you go through your Old Testament, and there's many places, a dozen-ish, of a place called Megiddo. Megiddo. All right? Har-Megiddo. It's, uh, it's the, I believe it's the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, all right? Now, Armageddon, which is the valley. Again, this isn't some strange, bizarre, wild thing that who could ever... No, it's if we know our scriptures, if we know the Old Testament, these things make sense. All right? Now, they gathered together the place uh, in Hebrew, which is Megiddo. And this place was uh, very similar. Uh, there's a similarity between it and Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, in the, the mental associations you have with it, all right? Now, uh, notice here again in verse 15, I'm coming like a thief. I just wanted to quickly, and I told you to hold your spot in Matthew 24, I just want to show you this um, here. Down near the end of the chapter here, almost, not quite. Uh, verse, what am I looking for? 40, blah, 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 blah. Three. Notice this, thank you. Uh, look at verse 42, though. He says, there, Matthew 24, 42. He says, therefore be on alert, for you do not know the day in which your Lord is coming. Matthew 24, 42. Be on alert. Now, that's what he's just saying here in, in Revelation 16. Don't fall asleep. You know, uh, Gosh, there's, there's so many other scriptures in first, like First Peter five, where he where he's exhorting them: stay sober, stay alert, because your enemy is going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know the end was at hand at that time. And then we see all these exhortations and warnings here. He said, "You don't know when the Lord is coming. Be sure of this: that if the head of the house had known at what time the thief was coming, uh, he would have been alert." His house uh, would not allow his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, you first century disciples of mine who are living at the end of the age. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think that he will. See, before the cross, you have statements about no one knows the day nor the hour. But after the cross, immediately, you get to Acts chapter 2. Peter says, it is the last days. The author of Hebrews, chapter 1, says, in these last days. And then, by the time you get to 1 John 2, John, the same John is the revelator here, if you will. Uh, John the Beloved, the revelator, call him what you want. 
uh, when you get to 1 John chapter 2, he says, it is the last hour. Well, wait a minute. How, how's it the last hour, John? 2,000 years ago, by the way. How, how do you know it's the last hour? If nobody knows, that it's supposed to know the day or the hour. Well, something changed between the Gospels and then get into the book of Acts. What happened? Oh, nothing big, nothing important. Just the Son of God died and resurrected. And the Spirit of God, who was supposed to lead them into all truth, was poured out on them and in them. So at that time, they could heed the Lord's warning. They couldn't have pinpointed it as far as 7 o'clock on this day, but they could use all the signs. Jesus, Jesus even rebuked the Pharisees. You know, how, how do you not follow the signs of the times? How do you not see the hour that's at hand, right? So he says here, the Son of Man will come in judgment on the old covenant system, that is, uh, in an hour that you do not think that he will. And then he says, uh, who then's the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them food at their proper time? Blessed is that servant or slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Last thing, I'm finished. I promise. First Thessalonians 5, I have it up here. Verse 1. Check this out. He says, now as to the times and the epochs, brethren... 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians was probably the first epistle that Paul wrote, by the way. Up in there. He says, To the times and epochs, brethren, you don't have any need for anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know, you, first century, right around 52, 3, 4, somewhere in there, AD, first century, some 2,000 years ago, Thessalonian Christians. Paul tells them, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, I just spit everywhere, hallelujah, the day of the Lord <laughs> will come just like, here it is again, a thief in the night. And I don't know about you, I'm not too crazy about thieves showing up in my house. You know what I'm saying? This thief thing is not about a secret catching away and disappearing off the earth. Oh, it's a good thing. No, it was coming, it was the judgment end of the age judgment coming as a thief on a people who were supposed to be guarding the house of truth. But as Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, when the storms and winds come, if your house is built on faulty ground, it'll take you and your house down with it. But those of you who believe in me as your Messiah, the winds and storms are going to come, but this house will stand. Or as he said in Hebrews chapter 12, everything that can be shaken will be shaken, but we've received a new kingdom, which cannot be shaken. Amen. All right? And so the, the kingdom of God is an everlasting. Isaiah 9, Daniel 2, Daniel 7. It's an everlasting kingdom. The kingdoms of this world will come and go. His kingdom will reign forever. <clears throat> Amen? Yeah. All right. Well, that was six months of seminary right there in one sermon for you. <laughs> Praise God. The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.